Well, Stuart, thank you very much. It is, it is such a joy to be here, and uh, I, I'm delighted to see so many people sitting in the sunshine on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I, I hope that you're all comfortable. Uh, we were looking at the angle of the sun, and it looks as if it's going to be going down behind the trees soon, so there'll be some filter. But otherwise, we have water, and we have drinks, and uh, I think we'll have a lovely afternoon together. It's a joy to be here, and thank you for a very kind introduction. Uh, I should also simply add, after all of those effusive words uh, from Rabbi Altschuler, that it is a pleasure to be a colleague at Chapman with uh, Stuart also. Uh, we found out early on that we get along very well together, and we've already had a number of opportunities uh, to, to share in programming and things like that, and uh, we are both, I think, chafing at the bit to take advantage of more opportunities. So we look forward to that, and, and hopefully for, for years to come, uh, there will be things to do. And it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, yes, thank you very much for those who have hosted this event and have planned it on very short notice. Uh, I think the early part of um, this past week, uh, it was still a glimmer uh, in somebody's eye, and it all kind of happened very quickly. And, and so it should be, I think, um, insightful, hopefully, and uh, engaging as we take a look at what is a remarkable textual discovery. <clears throat> Pardon me while I pick up the book, which is right here. Well, we've been working on this little text, this Coptic text, for a while now. Um, and we thought that when something called the Gospel of Judas, that is the, the good news of Judas Iscariot, when that would come out, that it would create a bit of a stir. But in our most optimistic moments, we never quite imagined what would happen. And part of it has to do with the fact that the National Geographic Society is very good at planning this kind of a publishing media event. Uh, and so they invited the world to come in the early part of April to Washington uh, for a press conference, and the world came. And when folks couldn't come from various countries, and there were all sorts of journalists that were there from, from all around the world, when they couldn't make it, uh, they could go to the internet and find that the press conference was broadcast on the internet, and there were press kits that were made available. So, so that was part of how the word got out about the Gospel of Judas. Um, that day and the next couple of days, it seems as if the story was on the front page of about every newspaper uh, in the world, as a matter of fact, uh, and the phone calls began to come in and appearances began to happen. Uh, fortunately, there are a few of us that are involved in this, uh, three of us who have been the translators of the Gospel of Judas, uh, Rodolf Kasser from Switzerland, Gregor Wurst uh, from Augsburg in Germany, and myself, and then we also brought in a few other good friends of ours, people that, that you might know about, like Elaine Pagels, and others who, uh, while they weren't involved with the actual work on this text, know about this material. And so there were enough of us around so that we could spread ourselves around a little bit. And Gregor took care of chunks of Europe, and I've been taking care of the Americas and Mexico and, uh, and now off to uh, Japan in a couple of weeks and so on. And so what we're trying to, um, to maintain a good, serious conversation about what is an extraordinary text for all of us. Um, and so it's been a great deal of fun. And the response, I would want to tell you, uh, has been basically very positive, uh, sometimes downright enthusiastic. And many people do see that the implications for the Judeo-Christian Islamic heritage are, are great. 
uh, and that there are a lot of things to talk about here. And the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, as that is spelled out here in a very new and, and fresh kind of way, uh, is really worth sitting down to talk about. And there may be some exciting conversations and times that, that we all have together as we talk about this. And, and so people are becoming aware of this and becoming uh, attuned uh, to the excitement of this. And most of the response has been positive. Uh, sometimes, as I said, downright enthusiastic. Of course, there always are a few people who have another kind of response. And uh, I do want just, I, I suppose not because I, I want to linger on the negative, but just to let you know of the, the range of responses. I want to recall a couple of things. And, and if I do have a bit of a smile on my face upon occasion, I'll, I'll try not to... Um, to linger too much on, on these responses, but, um, but we have been taken on by uh, Pope Benedict, uh, who has said that, uh, that uh, the church decided on this text some time ago in about 180, and they haven't changed their mind since then. Uh, when I was in Mexico City with my wife, uh, we had a press conference. By the way, a very enthusiastic press conference. Uh, uh, one of the best we've had thus far with, with a lot of folks that had a great deal of interest and still have a great deal of interest uh, in this particular text. But we heard that just before that time, the Archbishop of Mexico said that it was a sin for the faithful to read the text or even to watch the television program put on by National Geographic. And in the one story that I heard about that has got to be the most interesting and the most off-the-wall response, I heard that the Bishop of Mount Athos uh, in Greece um, said that in his opinion, the publication of this must be a Zionist plot to rehabilitate uh, Judas Iscariot and make him into a different kind of a character. Where he got that particular theory, I, I don't know, but, uh, but he perhaps should be doing a bit more meditation, uh, serious meditation, to uh, think about these things and think uh, more rightly about these things. But basically, my friends, the, the response has been one of great interest and, and even of some enthusiasm to dive into the text and to figure out uh, what really is going on with this text. Um, now, I'd like to talk for maybe about 45 or 50 minutes because I want to make sure we have time to have some interaction, some dialogue, some discussion, and so on. Uh, but, but let me just say a few words about this, and let me give you some idea also about how the text was discovered, what has happened since then. I, I won't rehearse all of that in great detail because of the fact that some of you have probably seen the National Geographic special where that is laid out in, in some detail. But there are some things that are good to know about uh, when it comes to something like this. Because when we have some kind of a major discovery of text, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the Nag Hammadi Codices, as Stuart mentioned before, uh, or this Codex, um, Codex Chacos, uh, it, it's good to find out what happens so that we can be ready for the next discovery, because there will be more discoveries. Um, in Israel, uh, in the Middle East, in Egypt, there will be more discoveries. The sands of the region, without a doubt, hold more texts. Uh, waiting to be discovered. 
As a matter of fact, if we had more time, I could tell you about a discovery that has not yet been uh, publicized very much, but uh, a Polish team did find another collection of materials in Egypt, and uh, I know a little bit about that. We can talk about that later if you want to. There will be more texts that will be of great interest to us, and so it's good for that reason to rehearse what went right here and what went wrong here so that we can be ready for uh, the next discovery that takes place. Uh, actually, a lot of things went wrong here, uh, and at the end, a few things went right, uh, so that we, we have, in fact, uh, a codex, uh, a book that, in fact, can now be published and can be read in large part. But the story is really not a very pretty story in terms of what actually happened. And you probably know something about it. This, this codex, this, this book, it's not a scroll. It's actually one of the early books. In fact, even from the point of view of the history of bookbinding, if you care about that sort of thing, this is a very significant find. It's one of the very earliest of the bound books that we know about. And many of the features that we can now reconstruct in the, in the um, construction of the book will help us understand something about the whole history of bookbinding. So we can talk about that, too, a little later if you would like to. Um, but uh, this, this book was found, apparently, with some other books. In fact, uh, there is so much more work to be done. If there is a budding coptologist among you who has an interest in getting into some of these materials, uh, there, in fact, uh, are some Greek and some Coptic materials that were apparently associated with the discovery of this book. And these materials have not yet been attended to. There is a Greek translation of the book of Exodus that has to be looked at. It'll be very significant without a doubt. Um, there are some letters of Paul that have to be uh, looked at as well. And then there is also some other Greco-Roman material that is very interesting, including um, a mathematical treatise that looks to be fascinating, that may help us as we understand something of the whole history of mathematics. So, so there is more out there. But as a part of that discovery, back in the 1970s, this codex, this book called Codex Chacos, was discovered. And we know very little about the circumstances of the discovery. We know the basic region. Uh, I went back with the National Geographic Society looking for uh, what is supposed to be the cave of the discovery. Uh, we didn't find the cave, but the discoverer, who is still around but who wishes not to be named uh, or discussed very much and doesn't identify himself, because if he came out of the closet, he might be accused of trafficking in antiquities and he could be put in prison. And Egypt is one place where you don't want to be put in prison, I can assure you. Um, so he doesn't say too much about it, but he did note where we were looking and he looked at uh, some photographs of the cave and he told us, you were close. It's not the cave, but you were very close. Uh, so we, we know something of the area in Middle Egypt where, in fact, Kodachakos was discovered uh, back in the 1970s. And then in the entourage of the discoverer, uh, there was some interest in uh, marketing and getting a little bit of money uh, for the codex. And once upon a time, uh, some decades ago, if you could get a couple of packs of cigarettes for an old scroll or an old book, you thought you had made out pretty well. But uh, many of these folks who have access to antiquities have learned a great deal. 
uh, about uh, the, the market. Uh, for antiquities uh, over the years, and now they ask often for millions. Uh, and such was the case uh, here in the 1980s when, in fact, the codex emerged in Europe and was shown to a few scholars. The, uh, the amount of money that was being asked for this collection of codices, including Codex Chacos, was, uh, was outrageous, and nobody had access to, uh, to the millions that were, um, that were being uh, demanded uh, for, for these texts. And so there were a few scholars, like my good friend Steve Emmel, who teaches in Münster, Germany. Uh, he was a, a young fellow at that time, a graduate student, who had a chance to see Codex Chacos and said it was in pretty good shape at that time, as a matter of fact. But the owner, when he couldn't get his million, simply packed up his materials and uh, went back home. And, and eventually, because the materials traveled around a little bit, uh, they came to the United States. Um, and uh, they came to the area of uh, the Coptic Egyptian community on the East Coast. And in fact, you probably have heard about this, uh, this very codex was in um, the United States and was uh, on Long Island uh, for a number of years, and it was in a safe deposit box. Not a climatized uh, box, I assure you, so that uh, in the wonderful humidity uh, of Long Island in Hicksville, New York, this ancient papyrus over the years absorbed more and more moisture and began to disintegrate. And still it was not sold. And there was somebody in Ohio that thought he, he had the money around and he was a collector of antiquities and um, turned out he was a little short on cash and his cash flow issue uh, prevented him from being able to uh, hold on to the text. But he had the text for a while um, until it had to be removed from his hands. In fact, the case is still in court and we're not exactly sure where a few half sheets um, or half folios still might be uh, because there are some missing portions of this codex. Uh, so there's still are some legal things going on. But while he had it, he was given some extremely bad advice by, by a friend because he was afraid that this old papyrus might have some vermin in, you know, some insects and so on. And so somebody said, well, what you have to do is you have to freeze those things out. And so he thought, that's a great idea. And so he put this in his freezer and he froze it for a while. So this papyrus that had gotten a lot of moisture and had begun to break down uh, now was frozen so the moisture inside of the ancient papyrus could expand and could destroy the text even more. Uh, Rodolf Kasser, who is the Swiss scholar who first had access to Codex Chacos, um, finally saw the text about five years ago or so, a little over five years ago. He said it was the worst-looking codex he had ever seen. It was in shambles. It was in a box. It was a box of fragments. It was no longer a series of texts. You couldn't read it. It was just a box of fragments, a thousand or more uh, fragments, some large, many very small fragments, and a lot of dust uh, in this box. And yet he looked through it and he thought, well, you know, with some work, it could be put together. Now, as I was, as I was saying, in case you're ever in touch with any antiquities dealers and they happen to have some, some Coptic papyrus around, if you happen to see anything that looks as if it comes from Codex Chacos, just give me a call. Because there, there are fragments that are out there yet. The Codex is not intact. Uh, it's, been, it's been reassembled in large part, but there are some half pages, half folios that are missing. A lot of fragments are missing. Uh, as we were going to press with this little book, um, we found out that a dealer in New York had a half folio and was willing to make it available. And so we quickly did a transcription and a translation of that, dropped it into the Gospel of Judas because it was from this very text. The very morning that uh, 
the blue line was going to be turned over to the print shop for the publication of this book. I got a call from my buddy Gregor Wurst in Germany who said, Marv, you're not going to believe it, but I just found another fragment. It was in the box, in the collection. We couldn't put it together before because it's very hard to reassemble all of this. Um, he said, but, but for sure, it, it can be placed. And so we, we placed it and translated the words on it and so on and called to the print shop and said, stop the presses. We have one more little addition to make. And since then, we've had a few other changes too. So it's a work in progress. And we hope that, in fact, with the publication of this book, which, by the way, for a book of this sort, I am almost shocked to tell you, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for a month and a half. Um, we hope that this book will provide the occasion for some people who may know something about these fragments and these half pages to do the right thing uh, and to make these things available. Because this should not be the possession of one person. This is the possession of all of us. It's a part of our heritage. And uh, it is a shame uh, when for private reasons uh, and reasons of, of personal uh, aggrandizement. Uh, individuals hang on to some of these sorts of things. So we're hoping that people will do the right thing if they can and make uh, this available. But the good news is that because of the hard work of Rodolf Kasser, uh, who is an elderly scholar with advanced Parkinson's disease, uh, whose mind is sharp as can be, uh, who has worked for five years to place fragments with a little tweezers, moving little fragments around, looking for anomalies in the papyrus where you see on a piece of papyrus, a strand of papyrus, that there's kind of a dark mark that carries along on the fiber. And so you look on, on this fragment to see if it matches up with the similar kind of marking on another fragment and put that together. For five years, he and Florence Darbra from Geneva have been doing this. They brought in Gregor Verst and myself then a little later on to try to finish the job. And so what was a box of fragments now is a series of texts. And in fact, um, there are four known texts in this collection. And three of the four are interesting, and one, the Gospel of Judas, is kind of a blockbuster text. But the other three are um, the letter of Peter to Philip, which is a text that we've known before from the uh, Nag Hammadi Library, and um, a text called James, which is about uh, James uh, the Righteous, uh, who was the brother of Jesus and um, was uh, involved in Jerusalem for a long time uh, as, uh, as a Jewish leader in Jerusalem who was the advocate of his brother uh, who had died before. And the story of James is another intriguing story. And here is a text written in the name of James. It's very exciting, but we also knew of this from the Nag Hammadi Library before. But this is going to add a great deal uh, to what was a fragmentary text from the Nag Hammadi Library. And then there's a, a little portion of a text that is found after the Gospel of Judas that is called the Book of the Stranger. But it's so fragmentary that we only have a couple of pages of that. And the stranger is Jesus. He's called the stranger. Um, and uh, it's a kind of a story of, of Jesus and his followers uh, done from a more mystical point of view. And what we have is very interesting, but we have very little. And then there is uh, the Gospel of uh, Judas. Let me say one more thing about the discovery and, and then the access that scholars have had uh, to the text. That is another one of these, these matters having to do with doing the right thing. Um, if, as we have already seen, uh, we almost lost the gospel of Judas again 
because of the greed and the ineptitude of people. Uh, and if there's a lesson there for us in terms of trying to preserve our cultural heritage, then the legal side of these issues is also very important, as we know very well. And if any of you have connections with uh, the J. Paul Getty, you know that they are very much involved in these issues, as is the case, frankly, with just about every major museum in the world. Um, all the good times that we have spent uh, at the British Museum, uh, we have noted a number of the artifacts uh, that have been uh, taken from, have been received from, uh, have been acquired from other countries, and uh, many of those artifacts, in fact, um, have been acquired by the British Museum under some uh, curious circumstances. In fact, um, it, it was interesting. Um, Sai Hawass, who is the uh, director of antiquities in Egypt uh, and is a very outspoken advocate uh, of Egypt and is frankly a brilliant person, um, a, a, little, a little sharp in his way, but that's fine, um, and is very much the proponent of Egypt having the right to its own antiquities. Um, was telling the story when we were together uh, in Washington a while ago, was telling the story about uh, what happened when he was invited uh, to give a talk at the uh, British Museum recently. And, and uh, there were a lot of dignitaries from the UK that were there, you know, and the media was there and so forth. And he was giving a talk and, um, and he said in the middle of the talk, he said, you know, I was standing next to the statue of Ramses the Great and Ramses was whispering something. And so I went over to Ramses to find out what he was whispering. And I put my ear next to his mouth. And what he was saying is, make them return the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> and the Brits were not happy. They were not happy. But, but this issue becomes a big issue. And there has been, frankly, my friends, there has been a cloud that has been over Kodesh Chakos too since the time of the discovery. Because it was discovered under... Um, unknown circumstances by somebody who lives in the area in Middle Egypt. And then there was a story that it was stolen and it was uh, smuggled into Europe and then smuggled into the United States. And um, it was uh, placed into the hands of various people. Yale University looked at it for a while. They were not sure about the circumstances, whether this was a text that could be legally looked at or not. And so they took their hands off from it. And, and those of us who are scholars involved with it asked the same questions. Do we have the legal right to take a look at this when the National Geographic Society invited us to, to join a project? Um, and I think there is something here that needs to be considered in this case and in the future. Um, they informed us at the society that this wasn't the first time they had thought about the legal issue. In fact, their substantial uh, battery of lawyers had been considering this and looking into all the circumstances with the um, foundation in Europe, the Messinas Foundation. Uh, to find out exactly what happens when there has been a cloud hanging over an ancient text and then the text is going to be made available for publication. What happens in terms of legalities? And the lawyers were convinced that we all, in fact, did have a legal right to work on the text to begin with. Um, they also were convinced that the right thing to do would be to preserve the text, conserve the text, publish it as quickly as possible, and then return it to Egypt once again. And the text is going to be returned to Egypt. 
So in the future, if you want to see Kodesh Chakos and look at the Gospel of Judas and the other texts in the collection, you won't be going to Vienna or Geneva or Washington or someplace like that. Right now, by the way, you can go to Washington and see much of it um, because it still has not been returned. But it will be brought back to Cairo and it will be a part of the Coptic Museum collection. And so there is going to be a very happy ending to all of it. And this was part of what we insisted upon as well, that, that if, in fact, we're going to work on it, um, there must be a proper conclusion to the story and the way that the text is dealt with. We have a lot of things yet that we have to attend to when it comes to these matters of antiquities, don't we? Well, so we, we have this text, the Gospel of Judas, and what was a pile of fragments now can be read and understood um, mainly as a more or less intact text. And we have a, a pretty good idea of exactly what the text is all about. And, and there is a translation here. And by the way, if you want to hold off for a couple of weeks, there's a new edition of this coming out very soon, this little book, uh, where we have tweaked the translation a little bit and have changed some of the notes a little bit and so on, because this is an ongoing sort of process. Uh, but we have a translation of, of a text that um, was preserved in Coptic, which is late Egyptian, but is a Coptic translation without a doubt of what was a Greek text uh, in its composition. And because of the fact that Irenaeus of Lyon, who was an early Christian heresy hunter, who was um, oh, sort of like a, a person from the McCarthy era, you know, sniffing out heretics. In, in fact, in a way, um, some of these folks who were the heresiologists or the, the heresy hunters, in a way, they invented heresy and invented orthodoxy. Uh, they invented those categories in a way by, by looking at certain points of view and saying, this is right thinking. And the way that usually works out, I mean, if I'm a heresy hunter, uh, my ideas are orthodoxy. And if you have different ideas, well, that's heresy. I mean, that's the way that goes, really, you know? So Irenaeus and, and his friends were all the orthodox folks, and the, the heretics were the other people uh, out there. And, and that's where this conversation about orthodoxy and heresy within early Christianity really got going. Um, and so it, it becomes very interesting to look at the theological and the political and the social aspects of this discussion. And Irenaeus, writing in about the year 180 of the Common Era, uh, in a book that he wrote, a very long and, uh, and rather, uh, uh, rather interesting book uh, called um, Against Heresies, um, described one particular gospel. He didn't usually name his gospels because you don't want to do the heretics the favor of naming their gospel unless there is something that is truly despicable. Uh, that really deserves to be highlighted, you know, for, for its particular character. And he was so shocked by a gospel of Judas that he had to mention that. And so he did mention a gospel of Judas, and he said there are some people out there, uh, he wrote in about 180, that have composed this gospel of Judas, and they make Judas into, you know, a good disciple, and we all know that that's wrong, you know, from, from the reliable gospels that we have, he said. Um, and, uh, and these people are the, the same kinds of people that are the advocates of all of the wrong people of the Bible. I mean, they, they, they pick out all the folks like, like Cain and Korah and, and all the bad people, and they advocate these kinds of folks along with Judas Iscariot. And so he did mention this gospel, and he doesn't say a great deal about the gospel of Judas, but he says enough so that we are convinced that he was talking about essentially the same text. 
So here we have a Coptic translation of the Gospel of Judas that was apparently composed sometime before 180. We're, we're guessing about the middle of the second century, which makes it a pretty early gospel, as a matter of fact. Um, and it was composed without a doubt in Greek. All the evidence of the Coptic translation would support that, and so it was composed in Greek. In fact, one of the intriguing things, um, our son is, um, is uh, a... Um, graduate student in classics uh, back at Yale and is very keen on Greek and he would like to do a back translation, he knows Coptic as well, a back translation from Coptic into Greek to see how close he can come uh, to, to some kind of a, a Greek version of the Gospel of Judas to see what it might have looked like in Greek and so it could be kind of fun to see what, what happens there. So here is a text that was composed somewhere around the middle of the second century uh, in Greek. And the title of the, the text was something like uh, the Gospel of Judas. But what's interesting about that is it's called the Gospel of Judas, but, but the title is a little different from some of the other titles of Gospels that we have. Usually, the way that goes in Greek or Coptic is, uh, as is the case with, say, the Gospel of Thomas. It's Puangelion Pekata to Homas, where kata or pakata means according to. Um, the gospel according to Thomas, the gospel according to Matthew, or according to Mark, or Luke, or Philip, or any of those other gospels that we have. Um, this is Pungelion uh, en Judas. It's the gospel of Judas, for Judas, about Judas. Um, he's not claimed to be the author, but it's a text about him. And it's a text about Judas where he plays a very different kind of role than he plays in any other gospel that we know about. Now, I, I suppose that we're all aware, perhaps very painfully aware, of how that role developed in New Testament gospels. And in fact, uh, we, we could talk about the development of the New Testament canon and, and how that happened and what features... Uh, were the deciding features that may have contributed to the selection of Gospels that were put in the New Testament. But what is clear is that out of very many Gospels that were around, dozens of Gospels that were around in the early church, there eventually, as the centuries passed, there were four Gospels that were selected for inclusion in the New Testament canon. Uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of the intriguing things is that the Gospels that we have representing early Christianity have a wide variety of approaches. But the Gospels that were selected for the New Testament feature particular approaches. They're all rather like each other. So in a way, those four Gospels don't represent the diversity that you can see within early Christianity with all the different sorts of Gospels, but reflect rather what is e emerging as the kind of political and social and theological point of view that these folks are considering to be orthodox. And so that's what is reflected in these Gospels. So, so that's one of the reasons why. I, I take that as a vote of confidence, by the way, from the dogs up there, yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why, I think, uh, we have Gospels that, that feature the crucifixion in a central kind of way. Many of the Gospels don't. The Gospel of Judas doesn't even have a story of the crucifixion in it. Many of the Gospels don't feature that, but have other issues about Jesus that are the, the issues of interest. Um, but uh, 
people like Irenaeus and many that came after Irenaeus uh, in the decades and centuries that followed played a role in kind of setting the stage for the selection of, of certain kinds of texts that would be the appropriate texts. And that's why to find a gospel like this, it's no wonder that Irenaeus was upset. To find a gospel like this is kind of a shock compared to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to say the least. And as a matter of fact, you can begin to see more and more why, why this becomes an issue. Because in the gospel of Judas, the other disciples, in fact, are, are all getting it wrong. They all have the, the wrong perspective on Jesus, and Jesus rejects the lot of them. And the only disciple in the Gospel of Judas who really understands Jesus is Judas Iscariot. He's the only right-thinking disciple of the bunch. And this Gospel is being written and read in the world where apostolic authority in the church is being embraced more and more. And various churches, especially the church in Rome, uh, at this time, uh, will be looking to different apostles as authoritative figures. And here's a gospel being used at that time that says, you know, all those apostles that you think are the authoritative figures, they all got it wrong. And the one apostle, the one disciple that you threw out, the 13th, is the one who got it right. And so you can begin to see that there are social and political implications here that would um, account for some of the hostility that emerges. One of the intriguing things, too, about the Gospel of Judas is the fact that Irenaeus of Leon was very angry about the Gospel of Judas and says some harsh things about the Gospel and then says some harsh things about the kinds of people that, that were apparently behind the Gospel. Uh, we'll talk about them in, in the minutes uh, to come. But these people didn't simply sit on their hands. Uh, in the Gospel of Judas, there is a whole lot of language that is uh, not politically very correct, as a matter of fact, because they're getting slapped around and they're turning back to say, well, look, at you're accusing us of all of these crimes and this immorality and this shabby thinking and bad theology and all of that. Well, we're going to tell you what we think of you. And so uh, the people in the emerging Orthodox Church are also getting it in the shorts in this text. And this is a reflection of the debate that is going on in this very dynamic world with theological and social and political issues that are not resolved in any way in the middle of the second century. And it's a very exciting kind of glimpse into uh, that kind of world. Now, let me say um, a few things about the contents of the Gospel of Judas that I think will be of interest to us in particular today. Uh, and, and I'll end by talking more about Judas Iscariot and, and his role uh, in this Gospel. But one of the things that I find very interesting in the Gospel of Judas is the work has just begun. I mean, we, we will have decades of work on this text to try to figure out what is going on. And and let me just tell you that one of the things I do is I'm a student of a scholar of Sethian Gnosticism. And uh, this is a Sethian text. And uh, my friends who work with me uh, on the Sethian movement are going to have to rewrite all their books uh, after the Gospel of Judas because this is the earliest Sethian text that we have and, and it's one of the best. And it will change everything that we have thought before about uh, the Sethians. In fact, one of my good friends who is the main scholar of... Uh, of Sethian Gnosticism around, um, 
is beginning to grumble about this text a little bit. I think he recognizes that it's, it's time for him to uh, rework his manuscripts, you know, and to uh, re-envision the whole history of what is going on. The Gospel of Judas is, is what we call a Gnostic text, uh, coming from the word, uh, the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Not ordinary, everyday knowledge, not the kind of knowledge you get out of a book, but rather mystical knowledge. The Gospel of Judas is a mystical text. It essentially is a mystical text that suggests that the people of God have a spark of the divine within. And if they only come to know themselves in, in some kind of intuitive way, they will recognize that, that image of the divine, that essence of the divine, that light or spirit of the divine within. And if they know themselves, they'll know God. And it's, from that point of view, it's a very moving kind of a text to, to recognize that kind of mystical quality. But as I think we all know, mystics are not only profoundly moving, but also often very disturbing. And if there's anybody here who's a mystic, you understand uh, what's going on. And the problem here with the Gospel of Judas, in terms of its mysticism, is the same as the problem we find with other Gnostic texts. These people said that they had direct access, if they would only know themselves in that intuitive way, to the spark of the divine within. And they didn't have to go to the leader of the religious community. And often it has been the case that some rabbis and some priests and some bishops have taken exception to that because they have perfectly good occupations and professions and they want to be taken seriously. And, and sometimes mystics you know, can be a problem for, for that reason and for other reasons in terms of this direct access uh, to uh, the divine. And that's part of the issue with this text. It's a mystical gospel. Um, and, and we call it also uh, a, a Sethian text. And let me say a word about that. This is Seth, the, the Seth that we know from the Bible, from, uh, from the book of Genesis, of Reshit. Um, uh, and if you remember the, uh, the, the first family, um, the, the stories that, that were told in the Bible and then beyond the Bible about, uh, about the, um, the original family, the first family, are, are provocative stories. But... Um, this was, you have to admit, this was a dysfunctional family. I mean, you know, with uh, Cain and Abel and the problems that the brothers had, you know, and, and Abel killed, uh, Cain killed um, uh, Abel, and then Cain went into exile himself, and it turned out very poorly. But then, thank God, Seth came along. And Seth was born as another son in the family, it is said. And at the time of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so what ended up was a very happy story after the story of dysfunctionality uh, with the, um, the original family of Adam and Eve and the kids. And so these particular mystics went, went back to Seth and said, okay, you know, if we want to be authentic human beings that are people of God, then we want to be the children of Seth, the generation of Seth. We want to be linked to Seth. And so they call themselves that. Uh, they call themselves the generation of Seth, the people of Seth, the... Um, the, the race, sometimes they even use that kind of language of Seth, or sometimes they even used um, language like this, that generation, those people. We belong to those people, those special people. Um, and because of their interest in Seth 
and tracing their lineage, their spiritual lineage back to Seth. Uh, we, to the present day, uh, sometimes call them Sethians. So these are Sethian mystics, and thus we can expect that there are going to be mystical elements that are found in the gospel, and, and there is a certain allegiance to the tradition of Seth that is found here. Um, now, where did these people, because these are also Christian people, uh, they claim to be followers of Jesus, but they have a very different gospel from what is in the emerging Orthodox Church or in the Great Church. Um, they don't care about a salvific crucifixion. Um, there's nothing about the crucifixion per se in this gospel. Uh, in some other gospels that are similar, as a matter of fact, they have Jesus laughing at the crucifixion. Even in the Gospel of Judas, by the way, Jesus laughs all the time. In the New Testament gospels, Jesus doesn't laugh. He cries but he doesn't laugh. Uh, in the Gospel of Judas, he's laughing all the time. And in fact, sometimes the disciples take it poorly because he comes by and he, he sees that they're doing something in the name of religion. And you know how we all can be if we're religious people. You know how we can be. I mean, we take sometimes our ceremonies very seriously, maybe too seriously sometimes. And at least that's what Jesus thought here. And he saw the disciples and they were engaged in a prayer of thanksgiving. It might have been some kind of a, a Jewish ritual. It might have been some kind of a, a, a Christian ritual that was projected back on the circle of disciples. And Jesus laughs at them. And uh, Jesus, uh, uh, while he's laughing, looks at them and the disciples say, why are you laughing at us? And he says, oh, I'm not really laughing at you, but, but I'm laughing at what you're doing in the name of your God. You know, you think that your God wants this and that this is so important and there really is something else that's much more important. If you'd only bring out that inner person, you know, that, that real human being within that is linked to the divine and stand before me. And they said, okay, we'll do it. But they couldn't do it. Only Judas stood up and came up to Jesus and then he was a little embarrassed or a little modest, it is said in the Gospel of Judas, and kind of turned his head away like that. But only Judas was able to face um, Jesus. And um, Judas said, I, I know who you are and where you have come from. You see, the disciples had had just given what they thought was, in the Gospel of Judas, the proper confession. They said... Jesus, you are the son of our God. And Jesus said, no, because you're worshiping a different God than the God who is my parent. And they took offense, as you might imagine, to this comment. I mean, we have the wrong God. We, we don't have the highest God, but a lower God, a demiurge or, or something using that kind of Platonic language or that Hellenistic Jewish language of the demiurge, the creator of this world who might be a more angelic kind of figure. Uh, only Judas seemed to recognize that there was another, another kind of linkage to the divine that is more important. And he said, I know who you are, Jesus, and where you have come from. Um, you uh, are from the immortal realm of Barbalo, and my mouth is not worthy to utter the name of the one who has produced you and has sent you. Now, that was, as it turned out, when I was stuck in my little monastic cell or something like that in Washington in the National Geographic headquarters when they got a hold of me and said, tell us what this text is all about. That was one of the first things that I saw. And when I saw that statement, you're from the eternal realm of Barbalo, 
then I knew what this was all about because this is the language that is typical of these Sethian mystics, these Sethian Gnostics. The, the word barbelo is often used as, as a word in Greek and Coptic that is, uh, is, is a reference to um, sometimes the figure that is called the mother, the mother in the divine realm. There is God the Father and there's God the Mother, and sometimes God the Mother is called Barbelo. But it looks to most of us as if the word Barbelo is not really a Greek or Coptic word, even though the texts that usually have that word, uh, in fact, are Greek and Coptic texts. But it looks as if that word probably came from Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, and it may well have to do with a preposition, uh, bait, along with the word for four, and the word ale, God, something like God in four, with a reference to the Tetragrammaton. Um, and it may go back quite a ways, as a matter of fact, in Jewish mystical tradition, because what we know about these Sethian mystics is that there were apparently Jewish Sethian mystics before there were Christian Sethian mystics, and the Christian Sethian mystics picked up many of the aspects of the tradition from the Jewish Sethian mystics. And this all makes you know, good sense as you begin to think about it. In fact, in the Gospel of Judas, what, what happens hereafter is... Uh, Turns out that, uh, that Judas has the right kind of piety, the right kind of modesty before Jesus. Uh, he cannot utter the name of, of God because God's name is unspeakable. It's ineffable. Uh, and so his confession is the right confession. Um, and then Jesus takes him aside and tells him the real mysteries of, of how that spirit of the divine comes in a mystical way into the hearts of people, into the heart of Jesus, into the heart of Judas, into the heart of all people like us, who might be people of God, and so on. Uh, and I'll say more about that. Um, but the hints that we have in the Gospel of Judas is that there is a prehistory of these ideas that will precede the Christian world of the middle of the second century. And that some of these ideas, without a doubt, go back, say, to the early part of the second century or to the first century or maybe before the common era. Uh, to speculation and reflection within Judaism regarding the divine and how the divine may be embraced and may be worshipped. So that much of the language seems to have a Hebrew or an Aramaic background. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, in the rest of the text, uh, there, there's more of this kind of language that that deals not only with the ineffability of the divine and perhaps with the tetragrammaton um, and the, uh, the holy name of God, uh, but there's other language that deals with, well, well, what finally happens when we get onto this world? Because you see the problem that, that followers of this kind of a text had and uh, all of the Sethian uh, mystics seem to have had is, is the obvious problem. Uh, you know, life in the flesh is, is pretty good. Now, it may be a little hot in the sun right now, you know, and so on, but I think, I think most of us enjoy life in the flesh and, and, and try to appreciate that and so on. But we also recognize that, that the flesh has its limitations and it has its pains and it has its sicknesses and it finally is a life of mortality. So that these folks were saying, where is the real person? Is there, is there some real human being that will transcend the flesh? 
And in a way, this is one of the reasons why some of these folks loved Plato so much, because Plato asked the very same kind of question and finally talked about the inner person and the spirit and the soul within and so on and had some things to say about the flesh and finally, in fact, said that real philosophy is training for death, that is, nurturing the inner person so that that person can be released. And, and that's kind of what, what happens finally in the Gospel of Judas. It's not that the flesh is, is so harshly criticized here, but it is recognized that, that the life of the flesh is due to pass away. And so if there is going to be some inner person that continues on, it's going to have to be the, the, the person of spirit or the person within. And, and that finally is the, the story that Jesus tells. It's a rather complicated story in the Gospel of Judas. And let me just summarize that story by saying that, um, that Jesus begins by, by saying here, um, Judas, step aside from the others. And, and let me tell you, let me tell you um, where you have come from and where all true human beings come from, where that, that spirit of the divine within a true human being may be found and how it got there. Um, and and he, he tells this in the context of, um, of uh, the reality of life in the flesh. And in fact, in the story that is told, he uses other um, Aramaic and, and sometimes Hebraic kinds of words and says, you know, the, the being, the angelic kind of being that is responsible for the creation of the flesh and the world of the flesh has a name like Yaldabaoth or Sakla or uh, Nebro. And we have known of some of these names before, and these names go back to Aramaic or Hebrew. Probably Aramaic, as a matter of fact. Sakla is Aramaic for fool. Um, the word Yaldabaoth has been, uh, has been debated for a while. Uh, and it probably comes also from Aramaic, and um, it probably comes from the speculation regarding the, uh, the tohu wa vohu in Genesis, you know, the, uh, the chaos and so forth. And this is probably the, the child of chaos, Yaldabaoth. Um, with the oath ending that is often added onto these kinds of names. And then the name Nebro, um, from a philological point of view, it's an intriguing moment uh, to find that name Nebro here in the Gospel of Judas as one of these beings responsible for, for the flesh, not for the spirit, not for the light of God and for the essence of God, but for the flesh. Um, Nebro um, is, is a very rare name in all of ancient literature as far as we know. And um, it, it seems to me and I have to test this uh, in the court of scholarly opinion. And so we'll see how this works out. But it seems to me that that probably comes from the Septuagint or the, the Greek um, uh, version of the uh, Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. Um, the, uh, the Septuagint Greek version of the word for Nimrod, uh, which is Nebrod in Greek. And uh, probably this is related, this is the closest thing we have to the Nebro, who is this kind of low-down figure. And, you know, Nimrod has this long history in Middle Eastern literature as some kind of a prominent uh, uh, divine figure and so forth. There's a long history of that before this crops up in Genesis. Um, and, and what's intriguing is that we have never been exactly sure what um, Nimrod might mean, but it has been speculated that, in fact, the word Nimrod, the name Nimrod, may be related to the word for rebel. Um, and lo and behold, in the Gospel of Judas, it is said that this Nebro has a name that means rebel. 
as if the person somewhere in the heritage that is putting this all together was aware of the Greek, but also aware of the Hebrew, of the Tanakh, and knew something about what the derivation might be. In other words, we're getting a little glimpse, kind of a vision of what might be the Jewish background of this kind of Sethian mysticism that is found in the Gospel of Judas. Well, now when, when Jesus goes on to tell Judas, now, now let me tell you, he says, uh, what what's, um, is really going on in terms of how the light of the divine came down into this, this world with all of its pains and its illnesses and finally its mortality and, and how it gave meaning to this world. Uh, Jesus tells a complicated story. It begins with um, uh, what is called uh, a great invisible spirit. In fact, the, the text really says, as the text goes on, you know, the fact of the matter is um, we can't even use the word God to talk about the divine because the word God is a finite term. And so you can talk about gods if you want, I mean, in terms of mythological figures and so on. But this is no term that can be used to grasp the ineffability of the divine. It's intriguing how there's something very modern about, about this way of addressing God talk um, uh, in this text. But when Jesus begins talking to Judas, taking Judas aside from the others, this is the beautiful way that he begins talking about the divine. He says, um, come that I may teach you about secrets no person has ever seen, for there exists a great and boundless realm whose extent no generation of angels has seen, in which there is a great invisible spirit which no eye of an angel has ever seen, no thought of the heart has ever comprehended. It was never called by any name. And this is where it all begins with the divine, that something that can't even be named because of its sublime ineffability. And what, what is then said thereafter in a complicated way, but in a way that, that, that still may be grasped, is that from this wonderful and from this infinite beginning, the divine extends itself. Um, through um, a self-generated kind of extension called autogenes, which means self-generated or self-conceived, almost like a self-conceived thought. Um, through other kinds of eons and luminaries and angels and heavens and firmaments, it's all just as complicated as the sky is in, in terms of, of its difficulty and so on. But it's like the devolution of the divine, like the light that shines down from this infinite source into this world. And it finally enters into the world of Yaldabaoth and um, Nebro and Sakla, which is our world, you know, our physical world. And it finally enters into all of us. And if we only know that, then we realize salvation. And that is salvation, knowing oneself, knowing the divine within and realizing that that is, is the true self. Now, it's an incredible story that is told, and that's the central part of, uh, of the Gospel of Judas. I remember talking to journalists about this and, and trying to get them turned on by, by this central mystical message, and they just wanted to talk about, um, is this going to change Christianity forever? Give us a headline, you know. Um, but, but this is the center. This is the center of, in fact, the Gospel of Judas, because this is the description of exactly how we got to this point and, and how we entered into uh, this particular uh, world in this way to embrace this kind of sublime reality in our own being. Now, what's especially interesting about this is the fact that this is given in the Gospel of Judas as the 
teaching of Jesus. But if you take the revelation by itself, there is one place in the revelation where the word Christ is used. And it looks as if it might even be a kind of interpolation where it is said, Seth, who is also called Christ. Um, it looks as if that might be a scribal addition. And if you ignore that one moment in a long statement, everything else about that statement is Jewish. It is Hellenistic Jewish, Sethian mysticism. And it looks as if it's a part of the heritage that again has been taken over and has been Christianized in this way. And I find that all of this evidence, uh, frankly, is just uh, a very significant collection of evidence to indicate something of, of the close linkage that can be found between some of these mystical aspects of Judaism and mystical aspects of early Christianity uh, during this time. It's very exciting, I think, and, and very moving to find this. Um, time, I know, is moving along. And let me, let me get on to uh, the last point that I want to make that I think is of interest to us, and that is the figure of Judas himself. Uh, in the text. I think that we, uh, as I said before, are, are quite aware of the legacy of Judas Iscariot uh, that can be seen through the New Testament Gospels and then through much of Christian tradition, including Christian artwork and legend and so on. Uh, in fact, what, what becomes kind of interesting is that if we, if we lay out the New Testament Gospels in their chronological order, that is, Mark and Matthew and Luke and John in that order, there is a kind of development of the tradition that can be observed when it comes to the figure of Judas Iscariot. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Judas is a rather ambiguous character. Um, and he has some good traits, and he's thought to be the one who turned Jesus in, but exactly what his motives might have been remain quite unclear. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and nothing is said about his death and, and so forth. Um, and there's no great condemnation that is brought upon Judas in the Gospel of Mark. But by the time we, we move through the decades um, toward the end of the first century in the composition of the Gospels, what we begin to see is that um, there is more and more of a negative spin that is put on Judas Iscariot. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, it is said that uh, he was a bad man who came to a bad ending. And we have lots of stories of, uh, of this in, in the Judeo-Christian heritage of, of bad people that come to, to bad endings. And we always wonder about those legends and the stories about, about the, uh, the fiendish deaths of, of the wicked and so on, whether that's something that is, uh, is really more on the, uh, the line of legend uh, in order to say something about theodicy and how evil ought to be punished if the world were the way it should be. By the time we get to the Gospel of Luke, it is said that the devil made him do it. By the time we get to the Gospel of John, it is said that he is a devil. And then there is in the Acts of the Apostles another story about a bad ending. In case you didn't like the first bad ending, here's a second bad ending, and you can sort of have your choice of bad endings. They're both awful, you know, um, but they really can't be blended together in any particular way. And I guess we know what happens thereafter. There are more texts that describe legends, that describe his appearance, and more and more he becomes the image of the evil Jewish person who sold his best friend out for money um, and is the reason, the Jewish reason, 
that Jesus finally died as he had to die. And that, that story is, is told, I, I don't have to tell you that, but it's told and retold in Christian legend with more and more viciousness that is added to that. And in Christian artwork, uh, Judas often is uh, caricatured. In fact, somebody was showing me um, a copy of the Chapman magazine where the story is, is the cover story about the Gospel of Judas. And what I should tell you is that um, the cover that finally emerged is a nice cover. It has sand dunes and camels, um, which I, I, I'm rather fond of both. I'm sure you are too. Camels and sand dunes, a nice combination. Um, the original cover was going to be um, a work of art, uh, a traditional work of art uh, by a famous artist uh, showing Jesus and Judas and the Judas kiss. And some of the people at Chapman took a look at that and said, this is so bad that we, even though it's a part of art history, we can't put it on the cover of the Chapman magazine and perpetuate this kind of image of anti-Semitism. We just can't do it. It may be part of, of art history, but we're not going to put it on our cover. And so, thank goodness, we got the sand dunes of the camels instead. Um, but we, we know painfully well this kind of a story. And then out of the blue comes another gospel that has a different kind of story to tell that says that Judas is the one disciple who got it right. He was the one who was closest to Jesus. And in fact, in a certain way of thinking about it, you know, the, the traditions within Christianity about uh, the beloved disciple. I mean, once upon a time, we had one beloved disciple. It was John, the son of Zebedee, and it was all very simple. Now we have way too many beloved disciples, you know. Uh, it turns out Mary Magdalene is a beloved disciple, and Thomas is, and James the righteous is a beloved disciple. There are beloved disciples everywhere. Um, and it seems as if what's happening in the early church is people are saying, um, Jesus loved my disciple more than your disciple. And there's a kind of an argument about that. You know, which is the most beloved disciple? And lo, here, lo and behold, there is another beloved disciple. And of all the disciples, Judas Iscariot is a beloved disciple, according to these Christian people. And that has got to be an incredible shock. Um, and, and that is the, the, the shaking that has reverberated through some of the early discussion of this um, within our communities. Or is it really such a shock? Or should it be such a shock? Now, if it sends us back to reevaluate the figure of Judas Iscariot and to recognize that we may be able to undo this building block that has led to the edifice of anti Semitism and to eradicate this building block that may do us all a great deal of good. I wish that hatred could be eradicated so easily. But still, it would be a wonderful thing if we would be able to address this. But it may well be that in uh, addressing the gospel of Judas and the tradition of Judas Iscariot in this way, we might even go back to the New Testament gospels. Because, you know, what's interesting is that before there was a gospel of Judas, there were some literary figures out there, and there were the folks that did Jesus Christ superstar and so on, who, who had a pretty positive way of looking at Judas Iscariot. And, and besides that, I mean, Judas has always been one of the most interesting of all of the characters in the New Testament. I, in, in Jesus Christ Superstar, he and Mary Magdalene stole the show, without a doubt. 
Uh, he's always been very interesting. And in fact, if we use this as the occasion to say, isn't there another way of looking at Judas? We might recall that even in the New Testament Gospels, with all of the editing that has been going on, and I, I, I hate to say it, but I must say it, with the... the the clear appearance of the emergence of anti-Judaism and anti-Jewish sentiments, sentiments right on the pages of the New Testament that can be seen developing and growing, um, coming to some rather graphic expression uh, in statements like the Jewish crowd saying, his blood be upon us and our children. And so to see those kinds of, of anti-Jewish arguments being played out there and those sentiments being present there, um, and in, in spite of that being built into uh, in all of its clarity, the um, figure of Judas Iscariot in the New Testament, there still are, if we look carefully, even in the New Testament Gospels, some hints that could not be fully undone regarding the positive side of Judas. He was a part of what is called the Twelve. It was supposed to be a new Israel in the, the Christian way of thinking about things, uh, a kind of anticipation of Israel. He was a part of that group. Um, it is said in the Gospel of John, whatever we make of that, that he was a trusted part of the group, that whatever funds the, um, the, the Jesus group had, uh, he was responsible for that. Um, it is said in some of the accounts of the Last Supper, uh, the Jewish meal that was celebrated by Jesus and his followers, that Jesus said, you know, the, the person who's going to turn me in is the one who's going to dip his bread into the dip with me. And that would be the person sitting next to Jesus. Maybe his best friend. And what is the Judas kiss? It's a greeting between two friends. I, I was telling my wife about this too uh, after, after being in Egypt for a while working um, on this text and looking for the fine spot of, of uh, the discovery of Kodesh Chakos and so on. Um, I went to Fau Kibli with the geographic people and we had a bit of time there and uh, I used to work there, did some archaeology there and, uh, and I asked the mayor who came out and gave us all sodas and, and, and so on. I asked the mayor, you know, if, if he knew a person named uh, Hassan, Ismail Hassan, who was a, a good friend and a school teacher in the area um, um, university educated, you know, very bright guy, came from a family of teachers. He had me over to his house a number of times to eat and, and so on. And um, I haven't seen him in like a decade or so. And uh, the last time I was in Fal Kibli, I missed him. And uh, so I asked the, the mayor about this. And so the, um, the mayor uh, talked around. And by this time, there were a couple hundred guys around, you know, and their galabias. And somebody knew about this Hassan. Yeah, he used to live around the corner. I said, yeah, right up there. And I said, well, he got promoted, you know. And, um, and now he, he lives in Dishna instead instead of in uh, Fau Kibli, a, a larger city about um, uh, 10, 15 kilometers away. And so I said, does anybody uh, have his phone number? And somebody went back to the house and got his phone, phone number. And then in what was like a scene out of a Verizon commercial, I asked, does anybody have a cell phone? And they all reached inside of their robes, their galabias, and they all hauled out their cell phones like that. 
And so we, we called up Hassan, and he was at home. And, uh, and he said, wait there. I'm going to come right over. And he came around the corner, you know. And, and before, one of, the, one of the rather endearing traits is the fact that he was a very intelligent, very thoughtful school teacher, but he was poor. And so he rode a, a donkey um, back and forth to school, would tether his donkey at a school and teach and, and ride the donkey back. And the donkey would stay downstairs, and the family lived upstairs. And um, Hassan jumped out of the car, and I hardly recognized him, but he still had those, uh, those bright burning eyes, but now he was all gray, you know, so unlike me. I mean, I didn't turn gray, but, but Hassan did. And his first words were, Marvin, I sold my donkey and bought a Peugeot. Um, and, and then after that, he proceeded, and, and I reciprocated, but he proceeded to kiss me for about 10 minutes. And I, I told Bonnie that she shouldn't be too worried about this. It's all right. Our relationship is intact and, and so on. It's going to be okay. Um, what was the Judas kiss? Was it a greeting between friends that has then been modified and changed into something that is horrific and that is the sign of betrayal? As a matter of fact, some of us really have to start asking, what is the story of the betrayal where somebody in the gospel account who has a name that sounds like the word Jew turns Jesus in? Is it simply as is the case in so much of what goes on in the passion narratives in the New Testament. Is it simply a, a replaying of the book of Psalms and ideas from the book of Psalms in order to give a kind of a biblical cast to the story of the death of Jesus? After all, in one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 41, um, the psalmist says in complaining about what happens with all of his enemies and even his friends, my closest friend who, who eats with me is betraying me. Did Judas ever betray Jesus at all? Or is that a part of the theological, literary tradition in the creation of the account that then takes on anti-Jewish and eventually anti-Semitic qualities? In other words, the Gospel of Judas may give us the occasion uh, with this dramatically different vision of who Judas is, to look back at the tradition, to look back at the literary accounts, and to see what exactly they mean. And for Jewish folks, and for Christian folks, and for Muslims, this may have some profound impact on, on how the death of Jesus within the traditions may be understood, and what meaning it might have. So there you have it. Now, there is, um, there's a bit of work that has yet to be done. I want to give you a chance for as many questions as you might have, but just to give you a sense of the fact that if you're all set to get to work, there is, there is some work that needs to be done yet. Um, this is a part of an early book, and um, the, the book is a papyrus book that has a leather cover, and uh, inside the leather cover to transform the soft back into a hard back, there is some scrap papyrus that has been pasted. Um, glued into the cover, uh, stuff that you get out of the wastebasket, receipts and letters and so on. Uh, the gospel itself uh, has no date. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written exactly, you know. Um, and we, we have some questions about when the, when the book itself, the codex itself was put together. We haven't had a chance yet to look at that scrap papyrus. And if anybody here is a budding papyrologist who would like to unpack some scrap papyrus and maybe find out some incredible questions that, um, that can be answered in that way, 
uh, please come up and see me because there's more work to be done. And hopefully this is the beginning of the work at various levels that, that is to be done. And hopefully we can also begin to have uh, some conversations that may be very significant for all of us as we take a look at the gospel of Judas and the role of Judas in that gospel. Thank you.